love ketamine. We know a fair amount about ketamine, but we don't know everything. Ketamine may be useful in patients on the severe end of asthma. That really surprised me. I thought that one was going to be a slam dunk. It's my go-to drug now for acute agitated delirium. That is a ton of ketamine, 10 mg per kg. Welcome back to Critical Care Perspectives in Emergency Medicine. Mike Winters here from the University of Maryland School of Medicine in Baltimore. So happy that you are joining us for this podcast, a very exciting topic, and that is the use of ketamine. We love ketamine, and we are using it for many, many indications. And as luck would have it, EPUB Ahead of Print, I think, is a wonderful review article in Critical Care Medicine on essentially the use of ketamine for the treatment in critically ill adults. So we're gonna go through some of the key points, some of the key conditions that ketamine is now being used in critically ill patients, and specifically what are perhaps some of those indications. But before we jump into the main portion of the podcast, let me bring in Dr. Peter W., Dr. Rob Rodriguez, and Dr. John Greenwood. Gentlemen, Peter, starting with you, how are you this month? I'm doing fine, just dodging storms amidst the pandemic. So the Gulf has had some high activity, and we had two storms at one point in time in the Gulf. So looks like we're dodging it in New Orleans, but not the case in Texas. Yep, agreed. And for those of you tuning in from Texas over these next few days, we'll be thinking about you as Hurricane Laura approaches. Rob, how are things on the West Coast? Doing well from a COVID pandemic standpoint. We're sort of steady in terms of our numbers of cases maybe a little downtrend in the number of cases in the past week or so. However, we are hit with wildfire season and the air in Northern California and the Bay Area is not so healthy right now. So we're kind of dealing with that issue right now. Understood. So in addition to COVID, both of you are potentially battling some national disasters in the form of hurricanes along with wildfires. John, how are things north of Baltimore here in Philly? I have to say, I guess I'm pretty fortunate that we're only dealing with the falling COVID numbers, which is a wonderful feeling. The city is still kind of hunkered down, but doing quite well. In fact, the exciting part is that we're starting to see some of our really sick COVID patients start to progress towards potentially getting liberated from their ECMO machines, ventilators, and walking out of the hospital. So that's exciting, but still not out of the woods just yet. Agreed. And our numbers in Baltimore are also turned in a very positive direction, markedly decreasing numbers. And I know that we all have apprehension about the upcoming fall season, a return in many states of students headed back to school and potentially the impact of influenza. So we're cautiously optimistic, but I think across our four locations, the numbers are trending in a good direction. So for those of you listening, we hope you are in similar circumstances. Well, John, you brought this article to our attention and put together some discussion points for us. So I'm going to turn things over to you to lead us through this discussion here on ketamine. Well, thanks, Mike. As you mentioned, the article's name is The Reemergence of Ketamine for the Treatment of Critically Ill Adults in Critical Care Medicine. And it's a timely article. I think all of us who are in in emergency medicine, pre-hospital medicine, have a lot of experience with the use of ketamine for things like procedural sedation, RSI. This is a medication we're all pretty comfortable with in, in terms of its use in acute illness. However, 
the interest in ketamine has largely started to migrate towards its use in critical illness and whether or not some of the properties of the medication can be taken advantage of in some of the sickest patients we take care of the hospital. So this was a nice little article. And what I think we can do is go through some of the basics in terms of the pharmacodynamics and really frame this in terms of some clinical conditions that we might encounter in the ED or outside the ED in terms of ketamine use and where it might be beneficial. So maybe, Mike, why don't you start us off? Give us a little background about ketamine in terms of the article and you know how we're using it today. Sure thing. And authors do a great job in sort of laying the foundation for a discussion point on several of the clinical conditions we're going to talk about in a few minutes. But we know ketamine well. We use it very frequently in the emergency department, as you indicated, for procedural sedation as well as rapid sequence intubation. We like it. It's in a very attractive medication. It has an overall short half-life with respect to its sedative properties. It also has analgesic properties, dissociative properties, and in some cases, it has a fairly unique pharmacology where it may have anti-inflammatory and antidepressant effects. In fact, some of our psychiatry colleagues have come to myself and some of our other site directors within our Maryland system about using it a little bit more in our behavioral health population. We've yet to really fully understand some of those anti-inflammatory and antidepressant effects, but nonetheless, these properties in and of themselves, along with the sedative, the analgesic, and dissociative properties, really make it attractive for select critical illness states. Now, the point of this particular review article was not to really do a deep dive and confirm that ketamine is useful in the setting of RSI and procedural sedation. They kind of leave that out of the review, and they get into other specific conditions that we'll touch on. And they provide some very, very useful tables in the paper going over these conditions and then providing you what is the evidence per se, what's the individual study data, the doses of ketamine they used, and ultimately, what are the indications. So I'm very excited to learn some more from all of you specifically about some of these conditions. Awesome, Mike. Yeah, and I absolutely have to second that. The tables are wonderfully helpful and, and worth taking the two to three minutes to really get a sense of the evidence that's out there. Well, maybe we can turn this to Peter and tell us a little bit about ketamine in terms of the pharmacology, specifically maybe the pharmacokinetics, the pharmacodynamics, how it works on our patients, and all this stuff is really important information. Absolutely, John, and I'm happy to share that with the group. We know a fair amount about ketamine, but we don't know everything. So we know initially that ketamine acts as a real non-competitive inhibitor of NMDA for those receptors in the brain. The onset of action, as Mike mentioned, via IV is really rapid, about 30 seconds. If we use it IM, it's a little bit more of a lag, three to four minutes. And then the duration of action, if we're going IV, tends to be five to 10 minutes, clearing after that. IM has greater variability and that duration of action is going to be anywhere from 12 to 25 minutes. The metabolism is primarily done by the liver, and it's excreted in the urine. Where does it act? So the NMDA receptors are responsiveness for awareness and memory, but they also have a significant role in the sensation of pain, and this is where we see ketamine being used a little bit more broadly. From the GABA receptor standpoint, these are responsible for agitation or sedation. Now, it's important for us to understand this. It can be either antagonized or enhanced. 
which is why benzodiazepines are often given in conjunction with ketamine. So you may, again, you may see a paradoxical effect and it can be a little bit unpredictable. We've all seen paradoxical effects with benzodiazepines in certain patient population when GABA is facilitated. Same can be held true for ketamine. So catechol receptors are stimulated through reuptake blockade. That's the reason that ketamine has such a favorable hemodynamic profile compared to other anesthetics that carry usually negative hemodynamic effects. So a particular pearl for this, despite the sympathomimetic potential, ketamine's myocardial depressant effects can be unmasked in states of catecholamine depletion. So if we've screamed out all our little epi and norepi inside, like in acute heart failure, this can result in hypotension and paradoxical bradycardia. So that's a good pearl for us to remember. Yeah, Peter, that's actually wonderfully helpful. It actually prevents reuptake. And so that's why if we don't have any catecholamines left, it can be hard to stimulate. And particularly when we're in these high stress situations, we're waiting for that catecholamine response to kick in and we don't get it. Well, that might be the reason why. So that's a great pearl and a nice review of what we know and what we're still learning about. You know, I think what we can start doing is going through the potential uses. And I'll start with the easy one and I'll leave the more difficult ones to you guys who are much smarter than I am, but I think the most studied role of ketamine will be the use in acute pain management. And I think we've all encountered these patients and even in the emergency department, not just the patients who've been on fentanyl drips or benzodiazepine drips for a long time in the ICU, but chronic pain patients who might be on prescription opioids, prescription benzodiazepines. So this article looked into the data behind using acute pain management, and their rationale was that ketamine may be an ideal adjunctive treatment in mechanically ventilated patients since it can reduce opioid requirements due to its receptor activity without any of the negative hemodynamic effects. So could we maybe broaden its use more liberally in post-intubation sedation and analgesia administration? So in their review, the most evidence was found for ketamine's use as an adjunctive analgesic. However, most of the published data are really retrospective studies. So in terms of evidence, what they found, they specifically looked at three studies that were identified to find subdissociative doses of ketamine, and that's usually less than one milligram per kilogram per hour, significantly reduce the opioid and propofol requirements intubated patients. Now, there were some commonly reported adverse effects, which included tachycardia, nystagmus on their neurologic exam, and occasionally agitation. And this is likely due to the unpredictable effects, as you mentioned, Peter, on the GABA receptors. So in general, after their review, their clinical interpretation of the data is that all of this is still largely retrospective level three evidence. But it appears that there is some data suggest ketamine may reduce opioid requirements and could or maybe even should be reserved as an adjunctive treatment for refractory situations. So maybe not quite there for routine use, but certainly an adjunctive option. And those patients that aren't maybe responding as what you would think to our usual analgo sedation strategy. Now, I think this is an interesting one. And Mike, maybe you could take this one. Let's talk about status asthmaticus and the role of ketamine in that clinical presentation. Agreed, John. I think this is very interesting, and perhaps we reach for ketamine in the setting of RSI when we're thinking about intubating an asthmatic, although that's not our goal, or a patient with COPD and bronchoconstriction. Recall that ketamine's effect of increasing circulating catecholamines along with inhibiting 
vagal tone and relaxing smooth muscle in the airways can result in some degree of bronchodilatation. And so we will often teach, hey, ketamine may be useful in patients on the severe end of asthma, such as status asthmaticus. Now, as it turned out, these authors' review could only find one randomized controlled trial where they identified the use an evaluation of ketamine for safety and efficacy in non-intubated adults who had an acute asthma exacerbation. So in essence, what was that study? Patients within that study were randomized to either 0.2 milligrams per kilogram IV bolus of ketamine plus an infusion at 0.5 milligrams per kilogram per hour, and they compared that to patients who were randomized to placebo. Now, it is important to note that there was significant dysphoria identified in those patients after the bolus. So the initial dose after some randomization was actually decreased to 0.1 milligrams per kilogram. And what did those authors find in that single RCT? Well, it did demonstrate improved peak flow as well as improved asthma severity scores. Patients had reductions in respiratory rate along with their FEV1, but that actually didn't reach statistical significance. So when we think about it, you know, I've thought about it a lot in Status Asthmaticus, and I was actually surprised to see that at the end of the day, the data is really, really sparse on the use of ketamine in the setting of Status Asthmaticus, and really comes down to just one randomized controlled trial. So while the authors state that they really can't recommend the routine use of ketamine for Status Asthmaticus, I think there is some beneficial effect, and it may be worth considering in specific patients, but understand there is not an abundance of literature at this point in time that would support its routine use for status asthmaticus. Yeah, that really surprised me. I thought that one was going to be a slam dunk, but it's something that I also routinely discuss in using for the effects that you mentioned, but I was surprised to see that there was not that much data out there. So that was a nice little review. Well, let's turn to Rob, and this is an interesting one, alcohol withdrawal syndrome. I think this is a clinical condition we're faced with often and can be really challenging to manage. Rob, what did they find for alcohol withdrawal and specifically using ketamine for these patients? So, John, in terms of rationale, as Peter described, ketamine's mechanism of action is similar to alcohol in that it blocks MDA receptors, which is a site of action that is sometimes targeted in alcohol withdrawal management. Given the astoundingly high doses of benzodiazepines that are sometimes required for treatment of alcohol withdrawal, we're talking about some cases in which we're giving hundreds of milligrams of lorazepam or other benzodiazepines. And given those side effects from those benzodiazepines, ketamine would appear to be a very attractive alternative for use in alcohol withdrawal. In terms of the evidence, there have been two studies that reported the use of ketamine as an adjunct to symptom-trigger benzodiazepine use in the ICU. In one study, it had no effect. In the other study, they used higher doses of infusion doses of 0.15 to 3 milligrams per kilo per hour continuous infusions, and this significantly reduced total lorazepam requirements. It was associated with decreased ICU length of stay and decreased likelihood of intubation compared to traditional symptom-based strategies. In terms of clinical interpretation, although ketamine appears to be a safe option, the evidence pool is still kind of small to recommend routine use of this as an adjunct to alcohol withdrawal treatment. We also have great other alternatives to benzodiazepines for alcohol withdrawal, notably 
dexmedetomidine or Presidex, which is really my go-to drug in the treatment of alcohol withdrawal. I think it's probably safer to continue using dexmedetomidine and other agents instead of ketamine at this point. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, Rob. And, you know, I think as you're seeing with the dexmedetomidine, we often discuss how it does a good job handling the autonomic lability. I wasn't quite sure about their interpretation of whether or not really reduce the risk of pure GABA withdrawal. Certainly, we can still see patients develop DTs and seizures with benzodiazepine withdrawal, and I'm not sure that ketamine fills that role or whether it might just be similar to dexmedetomidine and really focusing on some of the dissociation and autonomic issues that we get with pure withdrawal. So those are really good points, and I'll also put a plug for phenobarbital as an adjunct that has less of the significant side effects of all the benzodiazepines. There's some decent data on that. Well, let's turn this and kind of stay in the neuro box here. And this is something that we've used more of at University of Pennsylvania. I don't know about you guys, if you've seen this, but how about the use in statics epilepticus? Peter, can you maybe walk us through that clinical indication? Yeah, gladly. We just need to understand that in status epilepticus, particularly refractory, it's been found to cause decreased GABA receptor sensitivity to some of our commonly used treatments, drugs such as phenytoin, benzodiazepines, and phenobarb as early as 30 minutes after a seizure onset. So that's a little scary. We know that MMDA, receptor upregulation, has been identified in status epilepticus, and that raises the possibility that ketamine may be useful in refractory seizures. So what's the evidence? There's a slew of case series that are out there, but there's only one multicenter study which identified, which trialed ketamine in refractory status epilepticus on seizure control. The treatment endpoints were somewhat ambiguous, where quote-unquote possible response was defined by the permanent control of status epilepticus within 24 hours of starting the ketamine. A third of the patients were quote-unquote possible responders, and it appeared that those started earlier on ketamine actually had a shorter duration of status epilepticus. So what were the risks? The authors of the review raised the risk of ketamine's effect on ICP while managing refractory status epilepticus. But there is data support that it is likely a myth in terms of adverse side effects of ketamine. If people remember that typically with ketamine, the ICP will raise, but the mean arterial pressure is raised to a greater degree. So overall, cerebral perfusion pressure, which is mean arterial blood pressure minus the ICP, is really not affected. So cerebral perfusion tends to be maintained. What's the clinical application? It may be reasonable to consider ketamine in the manage of a refractory status epilepticus, especially in patients with hemodynamic depression from our conventional treatments. The dosages that have been used in case series and across the board were boluses anywhere from 1.5 to 5 mg per kg, and then treatment drips of 2.75 mg to 10 mg per kg per hour. And again, that's out of the case series studies as well, but it's all over the place. <laughs> Thanks for bringing that up, Peter. Now, that is a ton of ketamine, 10 mgs per kg. I don't know. I think that would make anyone's 
or any large animal stop seizing. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I thought this studies that were brought up, it's a little bit gray in terms of their outcomes reports, but we certainly are seeing it used. And I think there clearly just needs to be a little bit more of clarity around what the right dosing is and how we can use it. So that was a great summary. Let's turn back to Rob. Rob, I think at least on social media and around kind of the emergency medicine forums here, this interest in ketamine and using it for nearly anything has been brought up time and time again. And the last clinical scenario is the patient with acute agitated delirium. So initially on its face, people might say, wait, you're going to give a medication that could potentially make someone even more agitated in the ICU. But it's worth discussing because it is gained some momentum in the clinical realm. So Rob, walk us through their review of ketamine use in agitated delirium. Yeah, John. So the rationale is that ketamine has a very rapid onset and duration of action. So it may be a desirable treatment option for acute agitated delirium. In terms of the evidence, However, surprisingly, there's not a lot of literature looking at it for this indication. One prospective observational study compared ketamine to benzos or Haldol in 98 patients and found less agitation at 5, 10, and 15 minutes on a typical six-point agitation scale when they used ketamine. The authors identified three other retrospective studies which also suggest similar findings as the prospective study above. The risks, there may be high intubation rates after ketamine administration if given in high doses, in doses of two mg per kilo per IV to five mg per kilo IM. But this may be due to provider practice in terms of giving those high doses. So my overall take in terms of using it for acute agitated delirium is that it's money. Although there may be a higher adverse event rate if you use it in high doses, like two mg per kilo IV, you really just have to use it in the right way. It's my go-to drug now for acute agitated delirium. And the way I use it is I give small boluses of like 0.3 to 0.5 mg per kilo. I'll push it, wait a few minutes. It has a very dependable response. And when you give it in titrated small bolus like that, I think it's really, really safe. And again, it's become my go-to drug. I'd be interested in hearing what the rest of you think about that. You know, Rob, you read my mind. I was just going to turn to the group because I'm interested as well. Let's start with Mike. Do you have a practice for ketamine and agitated delirium? I certainly use it. I don't know that I use it exclusively, but I definitely want our residents to get experience with using ketamine for agitated delirium. And some of the paradoxical responses or maybe even anticipated responses have been surprising you know, in terms of how obtunded some patients get, and we may need to support their airway and ventilation for a little while. But I'll be honest, I do use it. I still will use haloperidol and lean a little bit heavier on benzodiazepines. But my use of ketamine, personally, I've had mixed reactions, but I still do like it in my armamentarium for agitated delirium. Cool. Peter? We're using less of it but our paramedic colleagues are using this a ton. And that's what our experience has been. So we're typically receiving these patients after receiving ketamine, IM, by our paramedic colleagues and dealing with that. 
Yeah, you know, I think a common theme here is experience with the medication. And, you know, the more we use it, I think the more experience we get. And I thought the data behind this was interesting in that there were a larger number of intubations in the higher dosing groups. And I bet that probably is just kind of due to a decreased level of experience with the patient's reaction and what to expect. So I can imagine if you use it more often, you can kind of walk your clinical team through the anticipated effects and maybe avoid some of these airway events. But certainly I agree, Rob, it's great to hear that you've had such a positive experience. Me personally, I use it occasionally, but I also kind of lean more on the benzodiazepines and Haldol as well. But certainly something that I'm going to keep an eye out for in terms of evidence and future use. So maybe I'll just wrap this all up with a summary. So I think there appears to be an emerging role for ketamine for critically ill patients. Certainly the data is limited here, but it looks like that ketamine in general, I think, is largely recommended as an adjunctive as opposed to a primary treatment for most really sick patients. The evidence is most robust for adjunctive analgesia in the intubated patient, but could also be considered in the critically osmotic and seizure patient. I think that's where the data is most robust right now. Certainly beware of higher doses in patients with excited delirium, as some of these reports do note that they've had some increased need for intubation. But Rob nicely pointed out, I think that experience with the medication is key, kind of be prepared for what's to come after you give it. So with that, I'll turn that back to Mike to close us all up. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys. Thanks, John. That was an outstanding, a super timely discussion as we continue to gain experience with ketamine for a variety of uses. Our congrats to Dr. Hirth and his colleagues on publication of this specific article in Critical Care Medicine. We have the reference in our handout for this particular podcast. And as you mentioned, John, I think that we are using it more and more, but this was really a nice review, a really great discussion in terms of what actually is out there in terms of evidence with these specific conditions. So let us know if you have any questions. My thanks to my outstanding colleagues here for a really great discussion here on CCPEM. Looking forward to talking to you all on our next podcast. Stay safe, be well, and bye for now.